Alison, if you could look confused, I'll just take a sneaky screenshot of the Zoom. Um, how does how does one look confused? <laughs> a bit like that. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the tenth episode of Octothorpe, a podcast for science fiction and science fiction fandom. I'm John Coxon. I'm Alison Scott, and I'm Liz Batty. And we have several letters of comment this week, and um, we have Max, who has written in to tell us that she beats Crazy Dave. Uh, she listens at three x speed, and she says that she wishes we could speed up pub chats too. And this gave me the idea for a panel show, which is to have people listen to podcasts at various speeds, see how much they understand, and then have them drink alcohol and then repeat the process until they're too drunk to understand any words. And I think this could be funny to do at a convention. Uh, okay, so so I have a theory that we should speed up Tobes and see if anyone can understand him at any speed. Yes. Yes. A hundred percent Yes. Because I once had a conversation with Tobes where I was drunk and he wasn't, and I understood everything he said perfectly, and I felt that I'd been, and he talked a lot of sense, and I felt that I might have been missing something for for all the previous years of my life. Hispania will tell you that she doesn't understand Tobes even when he's sober, but she lies. She does understand, really. Also, happy birthday, Tobes, because it was Tobes' birthday the day before yesterday as we record, which is the 19th of July, 2020. We should say here that we mean, when we say Tobes, we mean Tobes Valois, scion of the Valois kings. Rightful king of France. Uh, Liz, any thoughts on French aristocracy? I have, I have no thoughts on French aristocracy. Okay, it's always worth checking. On the subject of Crazy Dave, he sent us an email and he um, basically says that he doesn't tend to vote in the bsfa awards and he wishes that the number of hugo finalists would go back down to five now that the puppies have gone silent um because he finds he sometimes doesn't get around to reading all of the books and he doesn't like voting if he hasn't read everything but he thanks us for reminding him uh that you can actually just not finish the things you're not enjoying because that probably has uh, ramifications or implications for um whether or not you'll think it's the best of the punch um but he does know he has mostly managed to finish all of the hugo finalists in recent years because of his commute but notes that the uh, lockdown has somewhat hurt that method of keeping in keeping in um touch with the finalists at the time we go out you'll have about minus one days to vote in the hugos there is a slender chance this will go out on the day of the deadline but it might well be the day after so if you haven't voted, it's probably too late, but, you know, you could get reading. Sorry. So, Mark Plummer has sent us a poem, which I will now read to you dramatically. Shouldn't we each read our own? Oh, yeah, we could each read our own stanza. Yes, please. We do have to, we do have to note before we do this that Mark has written this in an order which is different to the order in which we say hello. Please do not be alarmed. This is artistic choice and it is valid and important are you gonna gonna um explain why he sent us this so last episode we asked uh, all of our listeners to send us um poetry and clara hughes about members of the uh of of, of the podcast and me and Alison and liz and mark sent us two poems in response to this challenge one was a clara hughes about me which is not going to be broadcast but we all thoroughly enjoyed uh, and Liz came up with a reaction, Clara Hugh, to that. 
Um, Liz, do you want me to read your poem or would you like to read your poem? I'm I'm happy for you to read my poem because I have lost the email with it in. And I, but I think it may be a limerick rather than a clericue because I don't know what a clericue is. <laughs> and and <clears throat> here we go. This is Untitled Limerick by Elizabeth Batty, age 34 and a quarter. Is that how old you are? No. Close? Reasonably close. On the flattering side, so we're okay. Yay! <clears throat> the poems of Croydon fan Plummer entertain Octothorpe for the summer. Though his rhymes are first class, they're too rude to broadcast, which is really a bit of a bummer. Thank you, Liz. And now, have we all got the email from Mark up? Excellent. So, Dr. John the Boy Coxon didn't notice several locks on Octothorpe because he hadn't checked, and thus he failed to mark protect. Liz Batty, also doctor, didn't know so many people had locked her. Octothorpe's a fanish gestalt, but in this respect, it's all John's fault. Guff winner Alison Scott has several Novas and she has also got two Hugos for the fanzine Plockter. But unlike John and Liz, she's... Fremulon. Shh, not a doctor. <laughs> this ends Octothorpe Poetry Corner. No, but, you know, we're, we're happy to do it again. Please send us more poems. Yes, absolutely. Oh, yes, please send us more poetry. Please keep sending us poems. Um... Ideally, you go for faintly rude, but not as rude as Mark's previous one. I, <laughs> I, I have to say, if I was responsible for editing this podcast, we'd have broadcast it. But that's just me. <laughs> Alison, you are currently on New Zealand time. That's not so. Or Australia time. I am currently on Sydney time, which is nine hours ahead of the UK. It is therefore currently 9.36pm as we record, which is significantly later than we usually record. Um, so I wasn't quite sure. I sort of said I will do a virtual guff trip and I would have loads and loads of brilliant ideas and I would make them all happen. And then I promptly forgot about it until my diary was like, <laughs> oh, you're... John and Liz are like, this is what Alison is like. Okay. <laughs> and my diary was like, your virtual guff trip starts today. And I was like, oh, I suppose it should. So I started setting up meetups and I, I now have meetups in in Seattle on a stopover and in Perth, a couple of times in Perth and in um, Adelaide and in Melbourne, where we spent most of the time with the Melbourne fans. Oh, whoops. The Melbourne fans schooling me on how you say the word Melbourne and me not really quite getting it. And then this morning, Canberra. I still have to go to Sydney and then up the east coast of Australia to like all the bits that have lovely beaches. And I want to do things. I, I, I've been... <sighs> And then I also want to go to Hobart, Tasmania, um, which is kind of a capital radio joke and doesn't really have anything to do with an actual love of Hobart at all. But I am going to get to Tasmania. And then I've got a couple of days in touring New Zealand before the actual Worldcon starts. Um, getting on to um, Australian time was really hard. But I'm on Australian time now and it's fine. Um, when I've not been doing chats, because it's not just Zoom chats, I have obviously had a lot of appropriate Zoom backgrounds. Um, I have started sketching. I should, pre I should have started sketching earlier, but I didn't. But I have now started sketching. So there are going to be some sketches of some of the things I'm seeing while I'm there. The primary thing I'm doing to experience the country is that I 
use my Oculus Quest, which has starred in previous episodes of Octothorpe as a way I was staying sane in the apocalypse. And now I'm using it. I create YouTube playlists of 360 degree videos that I shove my headset on and watch all these videos and oh my god it's like being there it's not always like being there but sometimes it's like being there and this is very exciting to me and and as a result I've got to experience a load of of authentic tourist experiences like going on a dolphin watching boat trip around Rottnest Island and um and walking around botanical gardens there's there's some things about australia um space is very big but it doesn't have anything on australia which is absolutely bloody enormous it's huge everything in australia appears to be very big everywhere um all australian cities have a set of things and and they seem to me to reflect colonial history to some degree so they all have um Apart from Canberra, they all have historical buildings which seem like, to Brits, seem like very ordinary Victorian architecture that in the UK would be in severe danger of collapsing in distri- into disrepair or being torn down in order to make flats. But but are, are kind of these are the exciting historical buildings in in um, Australia. They all have a botanical gardens. They all have masses of parkland and they all have uh, a jail which has been lovingly restored. Weird, weird detail. Um, and they also have, they have a kind of big thing about colonial guilt and debt, which I'm just kind of getting my, my head around, seeing as I feel like the British do not have the, as much of this, despite the fact that we kind of cause, um, but in our psyche, it's not such a, a big thing. And and Australians are lovely and loads of them have come out to see me. And I've done I've done some actual telepresence things where like going out into the Adelaide Hills with Damien and Juliet while on Juliet's phone and um, wandering around the centre of Adelaide with Roman Ozatsky um, on Roman's phone. And I'm trying to think, do any of you have any questions about So overall, it's going much. It's both better and more interesting than I expected. That's excellent. But I'm very tired now and it's only been a week. I have questions. So I am curious as to have you met anyone through this guff trip that, you know, were fans you didn't know previously? Or has it been hard to get people who don't already know you to come and join in? Whereas if you were there in person, it might be easier to get them to come out to meetups, do you think? No, I'd say about the meetups have been half people I already know. But in some cases, I only knew very faintly. And half people I, I didn't know at all. That's a terrific ratio. So roughly even. And, and lots of people I don't know. Uh, and some of them I feel I know quite well now. So I watched, an, um, of you know, not really properly well, but a bit. And this is how relationships form over long times don't they so it's not just i had dinner with them and then now we're bosom friends forever normally it's um it, it, you you kind of build these things over years so there were people i'd met once or twice who i've now spent some more time i watched an aussie rules football game erwin hirsch said you must while you're out here you must watch an aussie rules football game so i discovered that you can stream them online so i at one o'clock sydney time or 4.05 a.m. UK time. I was watching Carlton play Port Adelaide. I think it's okay now to say the result because it will have been a few days, but I've been quite careful, which is that Port Adelaide won. The 
at the point where the final whistle blew, they had a free kick, so they are allowed to take that free kick. And they kicked it into the goal and and beat Carlson, who is Irwin's team, by three points. Oh, that sounds good. So that was devastating for Irwin, but I was like, oh, if you're going to watch a random game from a sport you've never seen before, you could not have asked for a better one. That is how sports should be. Um, as far as I can see, Aussie Rules football has everything a sporting, a sports ball activity could require. It is, it is very fast paced. A lot of points are scored. Nothing is properly in control ever. And it is played by extremely beautiful people. There's a limit to what you can say in 2020 about spending two and a half hours ogling gorgeous men whilst talking to equally gorgeous Erwin Hirsch on Discord. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> this is how we get locks we just call our listeners gorgeous <laughs> this is how we get locks so um so i don't think that's offensive quite but i i mean they're they're just lovely to look at and it's um it's just very entertaining it's a good it's a good game i enjoyed it a lot excellent i am not much into sports ball i did have to pay i thought that was reasonable that's one of the biggest expenses i i would say touring places virtually is very cheap compared to touring them in real life are you saying that your monthly broadband subscription costs you less than a flight halfway around the world i have when i'm costing up the virtual guff trip which i am going to do i'm going to put things like my order for authentic new zealand meat pies into the list of expenses but i'm not putting in either my broadband subscription which i was paying anyway or my oculus quest which i did not buy with this in mind at all it had never occurred to me i'd be using vr goggles to wander around bits of australia and i've done some video diaries so um we should probably have a link to the video diaries on the show notes for people who feel that octothorpe every two weeks is not enough allison for them yes Alison will now put the links in the show notes. I have six subscribers at the moment. It's very exciting. I'm kind of demonstrating how you fail to monetize. Yeah, if you'd monetize this channel properly, then you could actually be raising money for Guff while on your Guff trip. Probably not very much. Maybe enough to cover your pie. That seems fair. Um, that would be great. That would be quite funny. <laughs> yeah, I actually have more subscribers to my other channel, to, to the channel I have under my... Under my Bohemian Coast name, despite the fact that they're just totally random things, I assume that those subscribers are all bots. So there's two videos so far. One of them saying no views, which is a bit depressing. Oh, <laughs> I think I really have no views. The the virtual guff report, um, which you'll be very pleased to hear, um, Claire Brawley of Croydon has volunteered to edit for me. It's going to consist of a vast stack of bits and bobs thrown into a, an electronic carrier bag and tossed over the wall to her with a kind of, if you can make any sense out of this, you're doing well, dear. <laughs> uh, yes. But it's, it's going to have an appendix on what the technology I've been using is and, and to what extent that has worked. One of the things I've done is gone for a flying trip with the flying doctors because I am of an age where British people learnt only a very few things about <laughs> Australia growing up and one of the things we learnt about was the flying doctor's service and now of course I live in Walthamstow where we have our equivalent of a flying doctor's service because it could take so long to get people the two miles 
from where they've been injured to a hospital that they send a helicopter. Yeah. So so it's it, it's much the same sort of thing except on a much smaller scale. And it turned out that David Cake's wife Karen, who I don't think I've met on this trip, but I, and I don't think I've met before, um, spent a year working. She she's an emergency doctor by trade, and she said spent a year in Alice Spring working for the Flying Doctor Service. And this is the closest I've got to anyone who lives in the interior of Australia at all who is actually also an active fan. Um, if you are listening to this podcast and you live in the interior of Australia and you're an active fan, then please please get in touch because I would very much like to talk about what it's like to live in the desert. Yeah, that's good. Sounds like you're having a good time on your guff trip. I'm exhausted. So tired. Liz has posted a link in our show notes uh, with a tweet that expresses some concerns about the Conzeeland program and an open letter to Conzeeland um, outlining and detailing those concerns. Um, Liz, would you like to talk a little bit about what's going on here? Yes, I mean, I just happened to see this tweet retweeted on my feed today with a link to the open uh, letter. Um, the discussion seems to be about essentially Hugo finalists and the use of Hugo finalists on the Conzeeland program. And it sounds like quite a lot of Hugo finalists um, have not really been offered things that are relevant to their expertise um, or they, they feel their panels do not have uh, diverse enough participants or a diverse enough framing of the topic of the panel. And also, it, it's not clear as to whether people can participate in programming without um, a full membership extension where they have to buy the full membership. And of course, this is all uh, especially difficult because this is the first virtual world con. And so there are going to be extra difficulties and problems associated with that. But it sounds like coming this letter, although not public, are some suggestions for ways in which uh, these problems could be mitigated. Yes, and the tweeted question was posted by Alistair Stewart, who is a nominee for, sorry, who is a finalist for Best Fan Writer. And uh, people may know him as well for being a host on the Escape Pod family of podcasts. My thoughts on this are... Good job, Mark, protecting there, John. Protecting the Hugo finalist, Mark. Yeah, well, you know. You can cut that bit, sorry. <laughs> I just got, because I was like, Alistair's not called Mark. <laughs> <laughs> Which is like, Mark Plummer has done a number on my ability to accurately um, talk around my role on the Mark Protection Committee. Um, so, the um, I have thoughts about this. I am a Hugo finalist, as has been previously mentioned. Um, I am not on the Conzeeland programme because I am not attending Conzeeland. I did get a programme participant survey, I think, um, but I didn't fill it in because I'm not going. Um, I, in general, can see the point that the signatories of the letter are making, um, but I think my thoughts on this are neatly encapsulated by something that listener Emily January said to me and Liz in another place and another time, uh, which is that I understand that representation is very important and I want people who are not traditionally attendees of the world con to feel like they're being invited in if they get nominated for hugos and i can see why having hugo finalists on the program is really important but however i think that there is also an argument that the world con is by and for the world con membership and so if someone is not a member of the world con it is ne is not necessarily uh the case that they should be invited to uh be on the program if they haven't signed up so i think there is 
in some ways a clash here between um worldcon as a thing that is put on by its members and the expectation that you will be invited even if you are not a member um and i think that is a complex discussion that kind of runs up a little bit about um the worldcon style of having members instead of tickets and i wonder whether conventions that are more ticket based might be skewing this conversation slightly in a way that is a little bit antithetical to how world cons have traditionally worked and i do think that there is another um element here which emily pointed out which is that she has chatted to newer convention attendees at easter cons who she has said oh you'd be great on program and they've said i can't be on program i'm not an author and i think this idea that to be on program you need to be a professional or need to be recognized in some way is dangerous because i think in general programming is about putting interesting people on panels but having said all of that obviously people who get nominated for hugos and become hugo finalists are perhaps interesting people who it would be good to have on panels so maybe those aren't antithetical concepts um so my thoughts on this are all very uh wishy-washy and nuanced which is unhelpful for polemic Alison, be forthright. I agree with everything that John said, so I think oh dear. some of the wishy-washy stuff there is fine. I also note that people are kind of like, I got offered programme, but it wasn't the exact programme item I wanted to do, to which I would say, that's a thing you can suck up, yeah? And But I also note that they say the programme is not diverse enough and it doesn't feature, di- it doesn't have enough, diversity in its range and scope and it doesn't have enough diversity of participants and that I think Con Zealand if it had got its act together four or five weeks earlier would have done well to have a think about it's now clearly too late for them to do that um some of the Australian and New Zealand fans I have spoken to have said you need to remember as well that this is a New Zealand Worldcon and they are and I think 100% correctly foregrounding Australian and New Zealand creators and fans in the program and that is that is absolutely the right thing for them to be doing part of what you do when you have a local Worldcon is showcase what you are doing both professionally and fanishly in science fiction for the world. And I think that's inevitably going to lead to some voices, particularly voices from American participants, not getting as much attention as they often do. Um, I have no idea where Alistair Stewart comes from. He's He's British. I should say the spreadsheet is a private suggestion of spreadsheets, which I think is correct is the correct way to do it there's an open letter and then they have privately sent a set of helpful suggestions to the program team which i think is absolutely the right way to do it well it's a good way it's a good way of doing it because it doesn't turn it into a giant mudslinging flight but it also implements concrete exactly. suggestions I, th- I think there's a few aspects of this one is i think it is normal or at least it's been normal when i've been involved to get in touch with all the Hugo finalists who you know are attending to say, hi, would you like to do some programme? But part of this is about the Hugo finalists who are not attending, who, ha- who do not have a comp membership. But part of the issue is that usually, because the expense of attending a Worldcon is way more than just the membership, it ends up being that even if you gave free memberships to every Hugo, every Hugo finalist, many of them still wouldn't be able to attend. 
I feel like if they comped membership for every Hugo finalist who was not already an attending membership, they would have a much bigger problem on their hands than the problems that they currently find themselves. Because all the Hugo finalists who had maybe, at some considerable expense to themselves, because it's not cheap, joined the convention. Um, This is another argument for why you should be Eurocon and charge 10 euros for your membership. I need still haven't joined yet, but I must do this. Or UK Games Expo and charge absolutely nothing. I mean, I have had discussions about whether we should just be giving comped Worldcon memberships to all Hugo finalists, like, as a matter of policy, and, you know, refunding the ones who already had memberships. But it it does, in any normal Worldcon, end up being quite a lot of your members. There are quite a lot of Hugo finalists as well. And there are, in fact, increasing numbers of Hugo finalists because we have a lot of multi-editor um, podcasts and and magazines, which is great, but it does just increase those numbers again. So I think we worked out that you'd have to comp like a substantial fraction of the membership, which would be an issue. But with this being a virtual Worldcon, that issue is partly sidestep because you don't have a membership cap. You don't have the physical facilities. Your costs are not as high. So in this case, I think they could consider comping every Hugo finalist. So my thought on this is effectively something that Alison knows I have strong strong feelings on, which is I, 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 I generally think this problem is being caused by the fact that the membership is far, far too expensive. Um, and the fact that we have seen like zero other science fiction conventions charge in excess of about $30, and this one costs somewhere in the region of five times that is tricky and i sympathize for the Conzeland uh committee and there must be reasons they're doing that and i suspect those reasons are things they can't easily get out of but honestly i think the whole thing is being caused by the fact that this is a hell of a value proposition for a for a virtual convention um and i think it's difficult because you're quite right that in general comping hugo uh members uh Hugo finalist memberships would not enable them to attend the convention anyway so there's not much point in doing it but this year it would be necessary to do that for most of them to attend and also it's the one year that doing it would mean they could participate so it changes the conversation a lot compared to normal um, world cons and other virtual conventions running alongside the world con. I have two thoughts. The the first is that one of the things that has been a little less nice about my guff trip has actually been a bit sad is that I keep having conversations with people where I say and are you going to con Zealand and they and people are saying no it's it's far too expensive I can't do it and I was I've kind of got used to those conversations in Britain but I I have been quite sad and surprised by the extent to which I'm having them in Australia and, and I think that's that it's really interesting because I had assumed the reason I was talking to a lot of British people who weren't going was because those people were not planning to go anyway. But if people from Australia and New Zealand are not planning to go, that says something quite significant, I think, about Zealand's pricing structure. Because I would have expected anyone who had been planning to go to the Worldcon to have been attending the virtual Worldcon. The people who already had attending memberships have kept them. They did their, their kind of partial refund system has worked in terms of keeping their attending members for the most part. I don't think a lot of people who had attending memberships have have scrapped them. But people who were were hoping to go or have not picked up the virtual membership just the same way that they haven't in in the UK as well. 
So I thought that was a bit sad. Um, my second point was, having said that they can't, clearly cannot routinely comp membership for every Hugo finalist because that enormous number of Hugo finalists. I think they might manage to comp membership for every Hugo finalist who is not already an attending member and is from a marginalised group and suggests that they may have financial problems managing the cost of membership. Because I don't suppose that's actually going to be that many people. So that, that would have been a thing that they could do. And certainly, I don't know if, if this is true of World Cons, but in the UK, we have an honourable tradition of having a, an unwaged uh, membership level, which is available to you if you feel you need it, um, rather than uh, making it sort of a thing where you have to be able to prove that you need it, um, which I think is in general a good model for doing that sort of thing. We don't, it's not a lot cheaper, but it, it's something. You could have the same system here where you say, look, if you are from a marginalised background and you know, you you would like us to copy membership, we will do it. We're not going to ask questions. You know, we're not going to ask you to prove anything about it. We just will. Uh, so my other thought is that having only very briefly looked at the Consignum programme, because I'm not going, it's it's got a lot of programme items, but I think it's still got quite a lot fewer than at a regular Worldcom, which I think makes sense. I don't think you want like 15 to 20 programme items running simultaneously. I think you probably want five to 10, but it means there are many fewer spots on the programme. Um, and I also wonder if they're having an issue of time zones, because one of the things that has become increasingly difficult when programming World Cons is trying to do the scheduling. It is like a, you know, multi-week nightmarish jigsaw puzzle. And that is with everyone in the same time zone to try and get everyone on items with the right people and to find a time when all those people are available and at the con and, you know, there will always be commitments people have. There are people who don't like doing late evening panels, people who don't like doing morning panels and so on. And sometimes you do go, okay, this would be the ideal set of people for this panel, but there is no time slot that actually works. And so I have to change it up. And I wonder if time zones are causing even more of a problem because if your ideal panel would have someone who's in Europe, someone who's in New Zealand and someone who's in the USA, that's going to be very difficult to do. So I wonder if sometimes the way that they have solved problematic scheduling issues is to drop people who would otherwise be good on the panels and replace them with someone who uh, just has more availability. I I think I'm sure that the time zone scheduling has been an absolute nightmare and they can't, you know, I, I basically told them I would be on Australia and New Zealand time, but I've been given at least one panel on European time. And luckily it's at, it's at um, 10 o'clock at night New Zealand time because I'm kind of a late bird will probably be okay. Um, but it's quite a serious panel. And normally at, at a British convention, I go on panels at 10 o'clock at night and they're all the kind of lighter hearted ones. So I don't know whether how it's going to work in practice. One other thing I wanted to point out. Uh, so I was complaining about um, the cost of Zealand relative to other online conventions. And we mentioned that the Eurocon this year is 10 euros. I will say that there's the opposite. Um, the opposite problem occurs to me, which is, is this partly because we as a community are not valuing our time as volunteers enough and we actually should be charging more than 10 euros for what is probably really quite a lot of work? Um, is this something where Zealand are actually charging an appropriate amount of money for what it is they're planning to put on and other conventions are so severely undervaluing their um, their offerings that Zealand are suffering as a result? But we always undervalue our volunteer labour because we essentially put thousands of hours of volunteer labour in for no money. All the actual cost that you pay for Worldcon is going to the physical facilities and the, the paid staff of the venue. It's not going to anyone organising it. 
So it would be a completely different model if you started charging for virtual conventions because of the volunteer time you're putting into them. I can understand charging in order to make sure you have, you know, a sufficiently good Zoom and Discord license and so on. But if if we're going to actually start saying, okay, and then we will somehow um, compensate people for the volunteer labor you've put in, then you are one, changing the whole model, and two, you're probably going to get yourself into a very sticky situation because you're then employing people. That's a good point. I'm not sure if that was what you were proposing. Not as such. I, I guess I wasn't trying to argue that they should pay volunteers as if they're employees, but I do wonder to what extent Zealand are using more services which do this sort of thing professionally because they partnered with the fantasy dot network and people like that and i do wonder whether part of this disconnect is coming from this is an appropriate amount of money to spend for this sort of event but most other places are much more relying on volunteer labor to make it work okay so we always rely on volunteer labor to make things work i think con zealand decided possibly correctly possibly not so correctly that they didn't have the skills within fandom to do everything that they wanted to do and so would need to use paid labor for something that that would normally be um volunteer labor but in fact their primary things are you know we're going to send you an email with your zoom links in it we're going to be on discord i mean this doesn't seem to be that much different from what balticon did and balticon managed with its existing volunteer knowledge you know we've built up some knowledge in this area in the last few months i mean i don't i don't want to criticize con zealand too strongly for a decision that they took under pressure i feel like they're doing their best job they can to run a good convention under extremely difficult circumstances but i feel like considering that we are all volunteers and we are generally happy to you know we muddle along in slightly good less less good hotels than we might and slightly less good circumstances than we might generally at conventions because we're actually after the volunteer feeling of it and and the relatively cheap thing i think that the model the models that we see going forward will be cheaper than god zealand they may not be as cheap as Eurocon. We'll have to see how that goes. A lot of the professional uh, conferences I might consider going to uh, have gone online and their virtual registration rates are usually somewhere between sort of maybe 20 to 60 pounds. So they are a cut above Eurocon, but they're not as much as ConZealand. Well, and so this, this actually neatly dovetails into the next point I was going to make, which is, is the other mistake potentially that ConZealand has made not relying on sponsorships? Because, like, the UK Games Expo is doing everything for free, but they're being sponsored by some of the largest companies in the industry. And a large part of the money they'll be spending to make their convention go is being provided by those companies. Now, Worldcons have not traditionally relied on sponsorships, and there are contentious discussions to have about that. And I have been present for some of those discussions, even though I am a baby fan. Worldcon has an interesting sponsorship history, which I think we should take another time but it is fair to say that in general but not always will cons have happily taken some money from publishers and easter cons for that matter but it's not normally there's not normally the amount of money flushing around in the industry that there can be if we were taking money from television or movie studios say so so publishing is more marginal generally however i remember having a chat with Patrick Nielsen Hayden of Tort where the Toronto Worldcon was called Torcon, Torcon 2 or Torcon 3 and Tor Books basically went yeah no we'll spot 
I see you have this range of possible sponsorships. Sponsorship things. Can we have the biggest one, please? Which I think is quite cute. They they weren't called Torcon because of that. But in general, there are issue. There are some sponsoring issues. We 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 are not very good at att- at acquiring sponsorship and then finding appropriate ways to use it that don't worry our membership. I think another good example of recent sponsorship is the San Jose's. Sorry, Worldcon seventy six colon San Jose twenty eighteen. They had their Hugo ceremony and it was sponsored by Google and they gave a free Google home to all of the Hugo um, reception attendees that year. Um, And because Google does not have an obvious um, conflict of interest with any of the kind of Hugo finalists, that went entirely unremarked upon and I think was generally a very good idea. So maybe that's the other thing, which is science fiction fandom in theory leans towards friendliness to technology and to other such things so perhaps going to a technology sector which is increasingly flush or maybe even going to somewhere like weta um who are obviously a homegrown new zealand institution but aren't necessarily explicitly competing for any of the hugo categories there might have been options but it's very easy to quarterback these decisions when you're not the one making them under incredible pressure and i do i do think allison's point about that is valid I realise that one of the other things I do is the MIT Puzzle Hunt, and the MIT Puzzle Hunt is spons- is entirely paid for, really, by sponsorship from tech companies. And when these tech companies talk about why they sponsor the MIT Puzzle Hunt, it's like there is no better place to recruit in the world than by the sort of people who like spending three days of their weekend solving very hard puzzles for fun. Is it is it too soon to say Eastercon needs to think about going virtual? We're back to normal by Christmas, Alison, don't you remember? And we'll play football against the Germans on on, on Christmas Day. I've just been I've just been struck dumb by that thought. That's so good. <laughs> Sorry to anyone who does come to us for escapism for the sudden and unprovoked mention of Boris Johnson, for which we can only apologize. Oh I, I thought this was like off the record for planning for the next podcast, so I'm not I'm not cutting that joke out of the podcast, Liz. <laughs> No, I think that bit about no, we're going to be playing, we're going to play football with the Germans on Christmas Day. I thought was amazing. We're going to turn the, we're going to turn the virus off for an hour, <laughs> so we can all go out and play football. Uh, yes, fantastic. Um, but in fact, I, I, I don't know if I'm the only person, but I felt a real chill in my heart when Johnson said we will have normality by Christmas because I just went, oh. Oh, well, we're not going to then. <laughs> clearly, clearly that's his way of saying this will be the 2020 to 2024 pandemic. I've done some reading. I don't think we've got time to go through it in quite the detail of our previous episode in which we talked about Hugo's. I've read the Hugo finalists for Best Novel, with the exception of uh, The Light Brigade, which is the last one on my list. I haven't quite got to it yet, and I'm about two-thirds of the way through Gideon the Ninth, and I have read the other four. Um, I've been enjoying them, generally. I thought they were very high quality, um, and I would be happy to see pretty much any of them win. So far, my favourite is Memory Called Empire. Um, I was on a Zoom yesterday with some friends in which I was decrying Gideon the Ninth, but it turns out it gets good about 40% of the way through. Uh, And now it has got good, I am really enjoying it. I will say that the beginning is a little bit of a slog, and my wife keeps asking me whether it has gotten good yet. Uh, And I keep saying, no, be patient, it gets there. Um, 
uh, I know that a lot of people think that's going to win. I don't know if it will. Uh, I think my favorite is, as I said, Memory Called Empire. I have uh, read City in the Middle of the Night um, and Middle Game. So I think City in the Middle of the Night is probably my least favorite. I liked it, but um, it didn't quite do what Charlie Jane Anders' previous novel did for me. Um, quite like Middle Game. Uh, really liked Memory Called Empire and The 10,000 Doors of January, both of which I thoroughly enjoyed and thought were really, really good. And as I say, Gideon the Ninth, I like. I think I like it better than Middle Game and City in the Middle of the Night, but I don't think I like it quite as much as The 10,000 Doors of January or A Memory Called Empire. I'm wondering whether i'm going to enjoy the light brigade because my wife bounced very hard off it um but i will uh be reading that and hopefully next episode i will have some thoughts but yeah so far those are my thoughts about best novel and i just wanted to very quickly outline them to show that i do read yay even when i'm not on trains that's probably a little bit longer than three minutes but that's mostly because i got a dc fontana episode <laughs> mixed up with the charlie jane anders book i thought you were going to do all the hugo categories and i was like Shit, John, I need dinner at some point. <laughs> <laughs> I I have read some of the Hugo stuff, but nothing like enough. Um, one of the... I accidentally found myself in a discussion of best novella at one of the Zoom chats I've been in at the um, at Critical Mass. Um, and they, they found it quite interesting because they said, we all like this one the best, but we don't think it will win. We think this one will win. And I thought that's very interesting. They kind of had this notion that the Hugo voters are voting as a as a conglomerated agglomerated mass that do not vote for the best thing. But whenever I voted in the Hugos and be really, really keen to see something amazing win, it, it's either one or, or, or come second to something else very solid. So I'm not sure I agree with them. But I'm I'm I have stored their prediction away and I will I will be watching the Hugos carefully. Reveal it in an envelope after the Hugos next episode. And I'm giving out a Hugo. I'm so excited. I I had forgotten that that was a thing they make guff delegates do. How do you how do you give out a Hugo on Zoom? No, it's great. When I gave a Hugo to Claire, it was brilliant. Even if I did pronounce the name wrong. I am I am very excited about handing out a Hugo, even though it's obviously going to be a virtual thing. Which category are you handing out? I am handing out best fan artist. Oh, excellent. That's a really, yes, excellent. I did get round to listening to episodes of at least one, but mostly two or three episodes of all six of the um, best fan cast Hugo finalists. And I wrote an article about it, which is, is, is reasonably complimentary about all of them. I think it's, a, it's an overview article at Glasgow 2024's blog. Um, and I was quite interested in them. I, I wanted to say a little bit here about them because... It turns out that most of these um, fan casts are people talking about books or movies or television shows. And sometimes that can be very interesting. But generally, while it is all very well, it is not my primary interest in science fiction fandom. Um, I realised when I was listening to these. Um, so hence, I'm, I'm, and I noticed that... Um, Lillian and Christina and Ian are out there doing a fan fan cast about everything else in the world now. So maybe we can encourage other people to do theirs too. So we can have a whole network of people doing fan casts that aren't just talking about the books they've been reading. Uh, so This Never Happens is the name of an excellent fanish podcast uh, done by Lillian Edwards and Christy Lake. Uh, and they made me sad because they reminded me that my Duolingo streak had gone away. 
um i had a multi-hundred day duolingo streak and it went away over christmas uh because i was very busy and i forgot to do it two days in a row and yes it went away very sad um but i now know the spanish preterite tense because i have been learning my spanish with an app called anki so um a-n-k-i uh, which liz recommended to me and it's very good for learning languages and whatnot and other things you could do full latex uh markup i i use i, I use anki for many th- i mean i don't actually but when i am trying to learn things i set up anki deck for the things that i'm trying to learn so for example i have an anki deck where i just the anki deck shows me the name of a dance that our morris side does and i play the tune for it on my melodeon so that i can remember how all the tunes start so that we don't have that embarrassing thing where the dancers are standing around going okay musician please play the 18th of may and i go you can't see on the video on the audio but 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 that that, that is a very embarrassing thing for musicians to be doing that is not uncommon for musicians what we will do is We'll take a photo of Alison looking confused and we'll put it in the show notes now. So like, look at your, look at your podcast app. Don't. Look at it now. Now. It's gone away now. <laughs> look at my fully functional LaTeX using Anki deck there. Whoa. You're going to have to take a screenshot of that and send it to me, please. Oh, is that LaTeX tie? Well, no, it's LaTeX for transliterated tie because this is from back before I could read. But the transliterations require me, or the method my school uses, requires more than just a standard alphabet. So it's got a, a U with a line through it, which represents the E vowel. Okay, so when you said LaTeX, I was like, oh, I guess you could use that for learning how to write maths. But I learned how to write maths by just <laughs> writing the LaTeX when I needed it and looking up things to find out the next bit of LaTeX I needed for the next bit of math. It had not occurred to me that anyone used LaTeX for anything other than maths. I use it for work, obviously. Uh, being well, that's how maths, isn't it? I'm Dr. The Boy Hugo finalist Coxon. Yeah, but you you use long words like magnetosphere. And magnetohydrodynamics. But Dragos kicking and screaming back to the topic, which is it's interesting that I think Alison has reached, I don't know, maybe there's like a first level of fandom where you actually spend lots of time talking about the books and the television and the movies, which maybe were the start of your fandom. And then at some point you, you move on to this this higher level Alison has reached where you're now sort of meta fandom um, because you're sort of t- wanting fan, fan casts that talk about fandom. Oh, I, I, I think one of the fan casts, sometimes the fan casts get into the material business of science fiction. So what it is that we are doing when we do science fiction. And I find that a lot more interesting. And, and all of the all of the fan casts do this sometime. It's not that some of them do it. But, but so a fan cast will go almost seamlessly from in this book, there are a boy and a girl and one of them turns out to be the the hero in disguise and the book tells of their adventures through the planet Nog. Um, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but not as much as you might want. And then they'll suddenly go into, and it's very interesting the way that this book compares with the same sorts of themes being talked about 20 or 30 years ago. And at that point, I'm, I'm riveted and I can't quite find a way to get, please stop talking about the plots of the books or why you find them exciting and start talking talking about what it is that is what it is that is going on critically so 
for people in board game fandom, this this reminds me a great deal of the difference between the Dice Tower reviews and the Shut Up and Sit Down reviews on YouTube, because the Dice Tower does great reviews in which he goes through the rules and explains what he likes and dislikes about them, which I find very dull and shut up and sit down talk about games and how they make you feel and how they compare to uh, how, how they compare to other games that might have made you feel similar things or different things and what the differences are and the latter is fascinating and something i thoroughly enjoy listening to in both science fiction and board games and the former is is not something i'm as interested in no i was gonna i think of it as a difference between a book report and a book review in a way and that they are aiming to do different things and, and giving me a different a different interpretation. I think part of the reason I like panel discussions at conventions so much is because you tend to get that kind of wide-ranging discussion of themes and juxtapositions and, and it helps you contextualise your um your reading and the reading you've done with reading you haven't done and like draws parallels and, and helps you explore the genre. Um whereas a book report talks a lot about a book which is valuable, but I don't find as compelling. I think that's fair. I hope that's fair. I want to also mention, when you're talking about um, gaming podcasts, I like I like Tabletop, which is a, a video, a YouTube series rather than, which is the Will Wheaton thing, because they just play games in an entertaining fashion. So I assume they play games for hours and then edit it so you only actually see the good bits. But I feel like I end up with a sense both of how these people are enjoying themselves, which is always quite engaging, but also whether this game is worth playing or not, which is something that I'm quite keen to get out of out of gaming podcasts. Next time we record this podcast, we are inviting all of you to join us for episode 11 of the Octothor podcast. That will be being recorded on the 2nd of august at 12 noon british time that's british summer time and we will be putting a link to that on facebook and if you're claire and mark we will be emailing you a link because we know you're not on facebook and if there's anyone else who's not on facebook um get in touch and we will email you the link as well it is not just claire and mark but we don't want to put the link just openly on the internet because you know how it so if you'd like to come, send us send an email to the email in the show notes or find the um, event in our Facebook group. And I would expect that after we finish doing the proper recording part of the podcast, there will be a trivial chat part of the podcast because those seem to work quite well as well. And you'd be very welcome to stay around for that. Or in fact, come to that without coming to the live podcast. That would be fine. Yeah, we can't tell you when it starts. It will start sometime <laughs> between 45 minutes and three hours after the main <laughs> podcast record. Ah, uh, too true. Too true. Okay, so that was the 10th episode of the Octothought podcast. And it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. It's good day from me. I'm in Australia. The theme music for this episode was Fanfare for Space by Kevin MacLeod at Incompetech.com, used under a Creative Commons Attribution 3.0 license. And I'm like, well, there will be written, you know, there is some written stuff. And I have, I've written up a couple of anecdotes about the trip. Like when I got off my Zoom chat today at 11.29, um, 11.29 UK time. I won't say where it was in the place I was. Um, my daughter said to me, did you really have another chat to go to at 11.30? And I said, no, having forgotten that we were recording Octothor. <laughs> um, 
But prior to that, she said, because it's really interesting because you said, oh, I need to let you go because you have a you've told me that you've got a draft to submit to before Worldcon and you have a load of work to do. And you said, oh, I really should be spending. I only get a couple of hours to spend with my family before I fall asleep. Those are the couple of hours I'm currently spending recording the podcast. But let's let's move that away. And you said, oh, I, I, and, and she she just reeled off the many increasingly fretful excuses I'd used to try and get this lovely but but ever continuing person off Zoom chat without success before going, no, gotta go, 11.30. Is this by any chance not for the podcast? <laughs> I feel like, I feel like it's probably okay because I don't think the person in question is going to realise this was them. And if they did do, then we're very sorry. <laughs> But I'm just going to say, it's one of these British things. If a British person says, I need to let you get on or I'm taking up too much of your time, <laughs> it means we're done now. Yes. Can we Can we stop Or if call? you say briskly, right, that, that means goodbye. Like, and it would be very useful if everyone was aware. Um, no, I, I... no, but sometimes right means I'm thinking of leaving and I'm going to look like I'm leaving, but actually I'm going to stay and chat for another half an hour and maybe have one more beer and then go. Yeah, no, I mean, I think I use the word right an enormous amount. Right just generally means I've actually had a thought and I'm not going to tell you. Um, so the, the I have I have become very good on Zooms uh, at just putting in the chat. I have to go now, bye, and then just connecting, which I view as the Zoom equivalent of an Irish goodbye and I find very useful. Um, but yes. An Irish goodbye? Irish goodbye, where you leave a party without saying goodbye. That's an Irish goodbye, right? I think so, yeah. You you just leave because you know it would take you half an hour to go and say goodbye to everyone. Yeah. So you just got to duck out. We shall put a link in the show notes. I believe I was I learned a couple of years ago that there is great merit in not saying goodbye to people, but just leave. And I think that's probably even more true on Zoom. I mostly do that at conventions, with a few honourable exceptions. I usually say goodbye to Liz because she's from far away these days. Um, so anyway, other questions about the guff trip? Yes. Now, you're going to be camping in Wales while on your guff trip. How does that work? We decided that while we have this window where it's possible for us to see our elderly relatives, we should do that. And so we're going to be camping close to my in-laws. So you're, hang on. So you're going to go camping with your relatives while on your guff trip? No, no, no. We're camping near to where my relatives live, but do not have enough house space. Ah, okay, fair enough. I, I mean, that's not that exciting. So I think what I'm going to do is get up at dawn. There is a problem. I There's a, not a lot of time after that and before Worldcon starts. I think the start of Worldcon might be very hard for me. That, so my current plan is to rise at first light, which is about four, and go to, go to sleep. Or maybe slightly before. I am determined to see this bleeping comet. Just look. Which I've kind of like, I'm up in the middle of the night. I ought to be able to see a comet, but my... My house and garden and location have other ideas. I'm going to need to move a little bit away from Walthamstone. I managed to see it by just going to our local park, which is not particularly unlike polluted, but I imagine that Southampton's light pollution is less than London's in general. No, I mean, I think Simon Bisson had no problem in Putney, but anyway, North Wales should be no oh, problem. Oh yeah, you'd be fine. I mean, it's, it's next week rather than this week, but I don't think it's going anywhere. I know that comets are slightly... They do move, obviously. I mean, you're, you're, Professor the Boy Coxon must know all about comets, right? Uh, yeah, the big balls of ice and stuff. Yeah, no, that bit I do know. <laughs> um, so, yes, Comet Neowise is visible 
closest approach to Earth is on the 23rd of July, which is in four days' time as we record, probably the day or the day after we um, release this episode, um, if you're listening to it. Uh, so yeah, you should be able to get good views then. Um, but I was able to see it with the naked eye um, night before last, um, and I managed to take a very good photo on my phone. So I was very happy. And I'm, I'm hoping that I will be able to use my phone to take an adequate photo just before dawn in North Wales. You'll be fine. You've got the same camera as me. I have a brand new phone. I mean, it's an old phone, but it... No, you don't have the same camera as me. You've got the one before mine. But you should still be fine. I've got the the new iPhone SE. It should be perfectly up for taking photographs of Comet. Yes, just take a tripod or something, because a 30-second exposure will do you wonders. Oh, yeah, no, I'll just probably put it on a beanbag. That works. I put it on one of those tree scaffolds you get for very young trees, and that worked fine. I mean, I'll, I'll sit it on something. So, so no, I am determined to see it. But otherwise, I'm, I'm planning to just get up at first light, or just before first light, to take pictures of a comet, and then go to bed mid-evening and not enjoy my evenings. But you know what? I mean, we're staying with we're staying in the field of Pete and Carol, Pete Crump and his wife Carolyn, Carolyn Thompson, not Crump. And um, and I, I, the whole part thing about sitting in a garden enjoying a beer with some is a lot more fun before it gets dark. This is an activity that stops being fun at nightfall so i think if i just kind of stay awake from sunrise to sunset it will it will be reasonably okay for for australia and new zealand i'm not i'm not doing the bits of the trip where you'd be traveling or hanging out in people's houses doing your laundry or did liz want to ask me any questions about guff seeing as i love nothing more than talking about myself that bit is really not for the podcast oh that's going in that's 100 percent going in that might be the episode title <laughs> <laughs> no i think i'm curious to talk to you in another two weeks when you will presumably be almost completely dead oh yes we should plug the live episode the live episode yeah we need to talk about our live episode coming from um liz's house where you're going to send me some backdrop photos that i can use as my virtual backdop yeah well of the interior yeah, to, of your house i'm gonna have to tidy my house it's not it's not very exciting, though. I mean, it's just a house. I could could probably steal some photos off the internet. Okay, so what would be even better might be a coffee. Can you go out for coffee with people at the moment? Yeah. So I could, like, have a photo from a coffee shop in Thailand. Liz, you need to send me and Alison virtual backgrounds so that we could all be in the same place when we do our live recording. All right. Okay. Uh, okay. Is that the view from your house? Do you have a number of foot? Uh, this is the view from the train station. So I've, for those of you who cannot see, which is everyone because this is a what? podcast, uh, I've been changing my virtual backgrounds to different places in Thailand. And this one happens to be a nice sunset from the train station near my house. Liz is going to send me these images. And if you look at your podcast app now, you will see them. Stop looking. They're gone. <laughs> I never see the photos in podcasts. That's I fair. know that Most there, people don't. Never... So that's why it's funny. It's quite funny. I mean, I, I'm just like, how could I see them? I'm, I'm, I'm not watching your audio show. But you're right. We should, we should cut all that because it's for it's like meta podcasting, which we will cover in the live show anyway. Oh no, I, I will, I will cut it down to just my joke, which was on point. Fine. That, that uh, you're channeling Ian Sorensen there. That's what you're doing. I do not mind. That is a great compliment. That is also staying in the podcast. Ian, you're a champ. 